Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. This is episode number nine with our guest, Dave Blum. On today's episode... And this is a very interesting dynamic because we're told, not just in our culture, but around the world, when you see an environment that looks like a competition, everyone else is the enemy. They are the enemy. We can't talk to them. We have to try and create subterfuge, maybe even sabotage them. And I've seen that. But, and, and I want to interrupt this. I want to suggest to people that even in the most competitive situation, opportunities for partnership and alliance do exist if you can get out of your mode of scarcity. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. How much is fun a part of your day-to-day business? How much is fun a part of your day-to-day life? Perhaps more to the point, how important is play, exploration, and bonding to everything you do? My guest has found the sweet spot between creating a business that supports him financially with a business that is not only fun and exciting for him, but one that literally adds that dimension to corporations. Imagine that. Meet Dr. Clue, aka Dave Blum, who creates puzzle-based treasure hunts in and around cities all across the land for corporations to use as their team building events and outings for their employees. So much good comes out of all this for all involved. But what's even more fascinating is that Dave was able to merge all of his passions, skills, and abilities into this career when at 32 years old, He was still at a job working under a CEO with a, quote, volcanic temper, all the while making $11.75 an hour. He's certainly a case study for following your bliss and making a desire change at any time in your life. Let's listen in to the treasure hunt master himself. Here we go. Hey there, hey there, welcome into the studio. The on-air button blinking brightly. I cannot love it more. I am so excited for our guest 
today, certainly for a few reasons, least of which I've always... I've always considered myself a, a puzzle guy, if that's even a thing. I don't know. I, I love puzzles. I love games. I actually, as a young child, I loved Games Magazine, if you remember that. May or may not still exist. Not terribly sure. But um, I love all kinds of games and brain teasers and puzzles. And my guest today is is like the puzzle maker himself. He's bringing the art of the puzzle to businesses and corporations all over the land. You're going to get to experience exactly all of the fascination that I am talking about. Let's bring him in right there. It is Dave Blum. How's it going, Dave? Great, Josh. Great to be here. So your business today is called Dr. Clue. Tell us, please, what exactly is that? Again, I'm fascinated by it. I love every minute of it. Well, you know how Indiana Jones didn't do things alone, right? He had to put together a team. He wanted to be the lone cowboy, but he had to put together this person and that person and that person. But it didn't really... Uh, you know, and, and I think there's a lesson there for, for corporations as well, is that uh, if, no matter how much you think you can just hang out in your own little cubicle, you need to put together a team. And so that's what, kind of what I do, is I help people to work on their teamwork, but also to access their inner Indiana Jones. So what we do at Dr. Clue is we transform parks, neighborhoods, and museums into a living board game a treasure hunt, scavenger hunt type game, which where companies can come, play the game in the real world, an enhanced world, and at the same time work on their collaboration and their partnership and their cooperation and communication. So that's the benefit to corporations. And if I'm not mistaken, you do this in over 150 cities uh, nationwide. What's the benefit to a corporation? Why are they looking to hire you and your, your team? Well, it's all across the board. These days, there's a lot of talk about unplugging and de-stressing. And I have never talked to anyone who doesn't say they are stressed and overworked. And so this is an opportunity to get people out of, the audio, out of the office and to unplug a little bit. So that's one thing. I think relationships are built outside of the office as opposed to inside the office because you put your status and your hierarchy, you, put, you take your hat off, you go through an adventure, you go through, you run the gauntlet. So we, take people, we want to get people out of the office doing a project together to build those relationships. And at the same time, I think they also like the idea that we have, give them a chance to interact with the city or the neighborhood. How often do you, particularly if you're going to a meeting, you go to a new town and what do you see? The same hotel, mm -hmm. the restaurant, the conference room, and that's it. How was your, how was your conference in Chicago? Oh, I don't know. I never saw it. So here we're actually going to see, get out and see an interesting neighborhood in Chicago or wherever it is. We're going to go to a museum. We're going to go to a zoo. We're going to go to a park. And they're going to actually have a chance to have an irreverent walking tour and see the plaques, the statues, the murals, the monuments, the historical signs, all of those things, looking down low for foundation stones or commemorative plaques, looking up high for those grander items, the 
weather vane at the top or the building inscription, the old faded advertisements from the 20s and 30s on red brick walls, which most of us don't notice. So in a way, you're kind of interacting with the area, and you're, but you're doing this in plain sight, kind of like you're a wizard in the muggle world. Hmm. So it's so funny because um, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were invited to participate in something that's called Midnight Madness that was brought to our town. And um, our best friends invited us to join them. And basically what it is, about a dozen or so teams um, meet up and are given the instructions. And we are then, everybody goes in their own direction to try to decipher clues that are given to them where the answer is a particular location or a store or a restaurant in town. And your job is to figure out this puzzle and then go to that location, take a selfie and then send it in to your team leader to determine if it's correct. And if it is, she verbally tells you the next clue and on and on. I got to tell you, I, I, I can't say this more literally. We had the best time we have ever had together. We still laugh about it. We still talk about it. So I get what you're saying. Bonding, oh my goodness, just laughter and de-stressing. I mean, we, we just, we've never laughed so hard in our lives. And I'm guessing that corporations for their people and what you provide is a very similar experience. Exactly. That's a very, very similar experience. You're solving clues in the form of puzzles, code, cipher, trivia quiz, the kitchen sink. Each one will lead to a different mystery location, the hidden treasure of the area. If you solve the clue, you'll know where to go. If you don't solve the clue, you won't have any idea where to go. At each location, you have to answer a question that you can only answer if you're standing in the correct place. And you also have to do a specific photo or video or something like that. Sometimes we do it old school through texting and emailing. Very often we'll do it using a treasure hunt app, which one person from each team will download. And that gives us an opportunity to do more video and also augmented reality. And you have a leaderboard and a live feed and all these great stuff. But the basic concept is always you're given all of these challenges up front. Let's say there are eight or 10 challenges clues that you have to solve. Each clue is worth points based on difficulty and each and the clues are all independent and stand alone. So clue three, for example, has nothing to do with clue two or clue four. It's not a sequential treasure hunt that leads to a final location where you dig, dig up a pot of gold you know, on the beach. It's much more like navigating a website. It's much more digital than analog. You have all these challenges in front of you, all these clues you have to solve, they're all worth points, and you have to decide as a team, how are you going to solve these clues and reach as many locations as possible? Are you going to go for the clues that are furthest away and work your way back? Are you going to go for the clues that are worth the most points? Are you going to sit and solve clues for an hour before you start walking? Or are you going to just solve one clue and then immediately set out? And you also have to decide a lot of other things, like how are you going to make your decisions? How long are you going to spend on a clue before you give up? Who is your team leader? Who is your map keeper? Things of that sort. How are you going to delegate the clues? Does it make sense to have two people on one clue and one person on another clue? You want to just you know, get the clues, solve one, get out of there in five minutes and get an early win. All of these things have to be navigated 
And the, so the parallels back to the workplace are very clear. Although I don't think that people go into this wanting to necessarily say, let's work on our efficiency today. Although it does, it, it ends up being an interesting dialogue. But I think mostly there is definitely a question of how do you communicate and create and execute a plan in a timed environment. And it's usually very engaging. And then of course, there's this puzzle solving stage, which uh, usually you can hear a pin drop if we've done our job right. Usually it's like instantly you're sucked in and you probably experienced this, Josh, on your last one. So I'm sure that this is the kind of thing, and I can't imagine how good and satisfying this, this is to you, but I'm sure this is the kind of thing that when you're long gone from the in-person experience, that this is the thing that is spoken about over and over and over again for months and years to come within that organization. Well, that is the hope. Very often when I ask people, what's your takeaway today? They say, we would probably try to partner a little bit earlier with other teams because we always have at least one clue, which at least has an advantage to partner with another team to work together. And this is a very interesting dynamic because we're told, not just in our culture, but around the world, when you see an environment that looks like a competition, everyone else is the enemy. They are the enemy. We can't talk to them. We have to try and create subterfuge, maybe even sabotage them. And I've seen that. But, and, and I want to interrupt this. I want to suggest to people that even in the most competitive situation, opportunities for partnership and alliance do exist if you can get out of your mode of scarcity. And very often people will say, wow, if we worked with another team, we could have solved that clue and we could have got an extra 10,000 points. Why didn't we think of that? How often does that happen at work for us that we don't think about sharing resources with another department or division? Maybe, uh, maybe we need to, 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 to contemplate this a little bit. So there's so much, if you really put some thought into this, there's so much that can really be disruptive about a simple thing as doing a treasure hunt. You, to me, you're like the mad scientist behind this whole thing, right? 20 plus years later. And I, I can't imagine what goes in to creating this and literally creating the, the as you said, the board game in these cities that yeah. you've never been to or had to then go to. How in the world did you come up with this? How did that happen? Well, I was inspired by an event similar to what you described. I went on a big treasure hunt in San Francisco. It was on the evening of the Chinese New Year's Parade in North Beach in Chinatown, and it was a lot of fun. And instantly I was thinking, I was so interested in what was going on with our group. I mean, the game was great. I didn't really think that we were ever going to win. There were people who had been doing this for years, but I was so interested in how we were interacting and how were we coming up with a plan and what were we doing when we got stuck. And so that was sort of the inspiration, but I didn't do anything with it until sometime later when a friend suggested, why don't you start a business? And I said, well, what would I do? And initially my, th my first thought at the time, since I had been working in job development, I've been working in nonprofits, is I'll, I'll be a, a job coach and I'll help people with interviews and I'll help people with how to create a resume. And I thought about it for a week and said, that does not sound fun. Now it'd be fun for a lot of other people, but it didn't sound fun for me and fun is all important. So I actually went back to the drawing board and said, okay, I need to actually sit down and figure out what my touchstones are. What are the things that I enjoy doing most? Because if I can combine all those, work will never feel 
like work. It'll always feel like play. And so I said, okay, what do I like doing? Well, I love to travel. I started traveling in my 20s. I lived in Japan for a few years. I, I, by the time I was 30, I'd already been to 30 countries. So I love the process of exploring. Number two, I love working with groups. I was a teacher in Japan. I'd also been an RA in college. I'd been a tour guide. So I love that process of taking a group from str inefficient strangers to, to a group that actually has some element of trust and, and is actually achieving something. And then, I, uh, like you, I've always loved puzzles and games. The, my favorite activity has always been game night. When I was a kid, I, was, I would get together with my bef best friend, Mike, and we would take out every board game we have and every card game we have. And, we, and, and it would just be afternoon afternoon of playing games, going through them, and then rotating back and playing them again, and then giving twists to them. Okay, what if we took two Monopoly boards and put them together? You know, what would that game be like? So, that's, so I thought, okay, I've got these three things that I like doing. I love games and travel and facilitation. How can I put them together? And my friend said, what about that treasure hunt that you went on? Remember, didn't you tell me you loved that? And I said, yeah, well, wouldn't that combine the things that you do love, you love doing most? You would be facilitating groups. You'd be traveling around, scouting out new treasure hunts. You'd be writing puzzles. I said, it's an idea. I'm not going to quit my day job. You know, that'll never pay the bills. But let's, let's give it a try. And so I went out and I created a treasure hunt for a bike group that I was a participant in, in San Francisco. I had groups of four or five biking around Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, solving my tricky clues. You know, I was kind of figuring out as I went along, solving clues, following the trail of breadcrumbs to all these cool mystery locations. The reaction was really positive. So, okay, well, this is great. Maybe I'll pitch it, you know, pro bono to some organizations. It took off to my amazement, and uh, not long afterwards, I quit my day job, and I stand before you today a bonafide treasure hunt master. Absolutely incredible. Take me back to Dave Blum as a young child. What was growing up like? What was the vibe in your family and home life like? What were you up to as a little child? Well, I grew up in a Jewish family, and my fathers insisted that we all have dinner together every night. Can you believe that in this age of latchkey kids? We actually had dinner together every night. And my father, who was a journalist for the San Francisco Examiner, he said, we need to have a conversation after dinner every night. We need to actually talk about what's happening in your life. We need to talk about politics and current events every night. And it was usually my dad and my brother and me, and I was the youngest, so my brother and my dad, they got into pitch battles and they were much more up on the, the events, but I, I tried to, to jump in. But that was kind of the, the environment that I grew up in was discussion and hashing out ideas. And my, my father was like, you got to read this book. You got to read this article. You got to watch this movie. So he was kind of a, a uh, not just a jack of all trades. He was like a renaissance man. And so there was a, a kind of a rich intellectual environment in that house. And there was a lot of gameplay. There were, a, there were a lot of games being played. Mm. So you had a, um, a very stimulating environment, it seems. It did. And what, uh, what was it like through high school and going through schooling? Well, I went to a public school. And I, was, I had a choice of going to the really good school on the other side of town. This was in Millbrae, California, right near uh, San Francisco Airport. 
I could go to the really good school on the other side of town where I didn't know anybody, which was all of the country club kids, but a better education, or going to the one that was closer to me where all my friends were going to, which was lower academically, and I chose my friends. As a result, I was a smart kid that got teased because it wasn't cool to be smart. It wasn't cool to care about school. And I, I, I still think that's crazy. And I, I talked to my wife about this. She said, oh, yeah, I was an A student. And it wasn't a big deal at all. Everyone thought it was normal. In my school, if you cared about schools, you got teased. You were a brain. And I never really, I never have gotten over what, what is messed up about, <laughs> about our schools, that being smart and caring about academics is something that uh, to be teased about. Well, <laughs> look mm. at the state of the world. You can understand how that trend has continued. Wow. And off to college you went to pursue what i had no idea all i knew is i wanted to go someplace where i could be like my dad and i could have a broad liberal arts education could delve myself into the world of ideas and i could be with a bunch of other smart kids uh, where i wasn't teased and that worked out exactly as i imagined and i, and I you know first off i get into school it's like wow a lot of people are smarter than me but everyone was caring about school. And it was like, finally, <laughs> finally, I'm actually in an environment where uh, I don't have to, uh, to feel out of place. And, uh, and that was great. But I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I very much, you know, there's types of people who have everything planned out. They're systematic, they're organized. And then there's a the wing it and plan it, play it by ear types. And I think that's who I was. Like, I'm going to get a balanced liberal arts education and then we'll see what happens. And uh, so that's, that's pretty much what I did for four years. Still graduated and still had no idea what I, was, what I was going to do. Were you actually teased? And at what point in your uh, upbringing for your grades where you realized, oh, my goodness, or did you just witness teasing? Oh, no, I was teased. Absolutely. And I was a, a, a heavy set kid, a big bone kid. So I was the, the, the smart fat kid, which was even rougher. Yeah, there was, a, there was, a, there was some teasing. There was a, a little bit of, of bullying, but somehow or another, I, it didn't ever last very long. Uh, and I had my little core group of friends. I'm a social person, but still, I, I, definitely, uh, I definitely received some, some teasing, and uh, it, was, it, it was kind of exhausting, honestly. Mm. So you are and have always have been smart, brainy, book smart, a student, intellectual, but through, through early education, you, you were forced in a sense to tone that down. At college, you were like, oh my goodness, perfect. I see some of my, uh, my colleagues here. I can get into this. So you graduated uh, decently with a degree and now you're out into the real world. You got it. I and then- agree. Well, somewhere along the way, I got the travel bug, and I got it bad. It was, and, I, and I've been trying to, to trace where it all started. I think it was my grandparents had these slides in our house of their trip to Hong Kong and to China way back when I was a kid, and there was a little slide viewer, and I would look at these exotic temples, these red columns, and I started thinking, oh, man, I want to go there. Got a chance in college to do a semester abroad in Paris. And, and then a, a URL pass around Europe and I was hooked. And all I was thinking at that point was, I don't care about a career or about making my mark, not yet. I want to see the world while I can. And so I, my senior year, when other people were, were setting up their internships, I was thinking about how I could see the world. 
So I started applying for jobs and I got accepted into a teaching program in Japan. So I didn't know what I was going to do. All I knew is that, that when other people were doing this, going to grad school, I was going to go to Japan and have an adventure. How was that? It was incredible. It was incredible. I was placed in a small town, uh, small by Japanese standards, 100,000 people. It was called Shimonoseki. There were about four foreigners. And I was working for the Japanese uh, government's uh, education program. So I was team teaching with uh, Japanese English teachers, visiting schools, junior high schools, team teaching English classes. And I was going to this school. I actually went to 35 different schools all across the prefecture teaching uh, conversational English and having adventures. And, it, you know, that could be a whole nother podcast. You're bilingual. No, no. In uh, fact, when I went over there, I didn't speak a word. So my first year was pretty tough. And I was pretty burnt out on school, too. So uh, it was a slow process. And then I learned and I studied and I learned. And I would say I, I, I got up to about an intermediate level. I never got fluent because it's, you know, it's a hard language and it takes a while. But and, yeah. and still no idea really what Dave Blum wants to do with his life. No idea. I stayed for one year, renewed my contract, stayed for a second year. Uh, after I left, I spent a year with a backpack traveling through Asia and Europe, went to, to India, went trekking in Nepal, had lots of adventures, uh, got involved in meditation, you know, uh, followed the Buddha's path. And it was really uh, quite an exciting thing. Came back to the States, tempted for a year, decided to go back to Japan for another year, uh, to make some more money and to continue to figure out what I was going to do with my life when I grow up. And then, I, and then I sort of came to a crossroad of, okay, I've been in Japan for three years, getting into my late 20s. Do I want to settle here and be an expatriate, expatriate? There's lots of work here. Or do I want to go home and figure it out? And I figured, eh, if, I, if I feel like I'm avoiding, it's probably time to lean into that. And so I came on back to try and figure out my life. Still no idea. Tell me about the, you said meditation and the, uh, the Buddha life. Tell me a little bit about that. They have some really interesting opportunities when you're in Asia, very low cost. And I found a meditation retreat in southern Thailand on the island of Koh Samui, where, which was uh, essentially free. And it was an opportunity for Western travelers to learn about uh, Buddhism and meditation. I had a friend, a dear friend who had been meditating for years who uh, I wanted to, to follow his path. So I, I did it, sat on this little island with scorpions and bedbugs for 10 days <laughs> and uh, probably over dramatizing, but those were, those were, and I really was, was quite intrigued. I ended up doing another retreat up in, uh, in Kathmandu, came back and did another retreat and just became very interested in this whole concept of how to create a buffer between your thoughts and yourself. Tell me more about that buffer. Well, it, it, it really is this. Most of us, when we have a thought or a feeling, we immediately act on it. We, we run to town with our thoughts, and, and then we either get angry or we get depressed, or we act out on it, which is even worse. You know? and of course, this is what makes Hollywood successful, is you've got a lot of people who, who are, are acting out on their emotions. But what I've learned from meditation over the years is that you can actually hold your thoughts and feelings at some length and look at them and examine them and explore and basically say, this is what's happening now. Interesting. What's next? Oh, this is what's happening now. What's next? 
And that whole process of creating that, that little moment allows you to not get so tweaked about things that happen in life, not get so stressed or so reactive when people get in your face as they do as life happens. And so I thought found that whole process. And then of course, there's this whole concept of really understanding that things are changing all the time. That every time that you think this is a permanent fixed situation, you'll wait a little moment and it's different. And it's different and the situation dies, it transforms and something new similar rises. And then it, that situation, dies. and this happens all the time with your thought, happens with your breath, it happens in your life. And so just to realize, wow, I'm having a hard time right now, but it's gonna change in a second. So just wait for the change, the change is gonna happen. So it's really informed the way I live. I know that if I don't meditate, I have a very grumpy bad day. When I do, I'm, I flow much more easier. And if I'm, like I said, if I'm having particular challenges we all do being humans, I just wait and see what's next because something new will arise. Man, you're preaching to the choir. I've gotten into meditation uh, a few months ago, and to say it's been a game changer, a life changer, is a is a big understatement. I, I completely embrace everything you're saying and agree with all of that. I love how you put it that we have to put the separation between uh, our thoughts and ourselves. We are not our thoughts, right? Where that presence behind the thoughts, observing it and looking into that space allows you to understand that whole concept. But it takes daily commitment. And in your case, it seems, and in my case, I do daily meditation among others, some, some deliberate rituals and habits. And it, I, I will not go a day without it. And it's, it's truly everything. It really is. And like I said, days just don't go as well without it. And sometimes you prioritize and you have to be careful. It's very easy to get up and get sucked into your work and your computer and your various screens. And it always is beneficial when you can unplug for a moment and just spend little time thinking, <laughs> looking at yourself and looking at your life and, and just uh, getting in touch with the, the changeability of life. So now on your journey, uh, you're now back in the States in the early to mid 90s. Here we yes. go. Exactly. First thing I did was I said, I still love traveling. I speak some Japanese and I got a job in tourism, working with Japanese tourists. Allowed me to improve my Japanese. And then I branched off and started working with European clients. And I started traveling across the country, taking people on cross country camping trips because that's what you do with an expensive education. You take people across the country. And that was actually a lot of fun. And it allowed me to keep on working on my, my personal skills and facilitation skills. And it was, it was a lot of fun and it paid nothing. I think it paid $800 a month. Woohoo! But you know, if you're, you know, it was the, it was the tour life. I couldn't, I knew I wasn't going to do that very long, but it was a lot of fun. And then I said, okay, you know, we're, we're in the early age. This was back then when you could actually get a, job as a word processor not you were you were not a word processor computer but you were someone who processed words so it was kind of like a secretary without the secretarial secretarial skills you were you were in a transition zone where people didn't know computers and they would come to you with written things and say type this up and make it look pretty and so i actually started doing office jobs where i was i was uh, doing i was working with word perfect and ms word and all the things that came before and I was working in offices, and it was my first chance to actually observe 
what an office life looks like. Because before that I was in Japan and I was traveling around and working as a tour guide. Now I'm in an office and I'm watching office politics and I'm watching explosive bosses with poor social skills. I'm watching people hiding in their cubicles. And, I'm, and I think this is where the germ or the idea started to come that there has to be some way for people to, to get along better and communicate better because there's a lot of dysfunctional behavior out there. So you found yourself, I think of what you're, what you're referring to is you found yourself as, as an insurance broker. Exactly. I was, I was not an insurance broker. I was the word processor in an insurance brokerage. Exactly. Mm. And uh, you, you mentioned and alluded to that boss with that volcanic temper, as you put it. Can you give us, really paint that picture? How, how bad was it? It was bad. And here's the thing. This fellow was a VP and he was a top salesman. So when he needed to turn on the oily charm and schmooze people, he could do it. And he, di and he did this with, you know, I'm sure he went golfing with people. And so he was a valuable contributor to the office. So he was never going to be fired, which seemed to give him permission to treat everyone badly around him. And I saw people uh, who would walk into his office and he'd be screaming and you would hear it from the office. And then you'd see people in their cubicles slinking down. He, he yelled at everyone. And he was like, he was like a Teflon, you know, you couldn't touch him. It's terrible. You, you were on the receiving end of that too? Not so much me, actually. Uh, somehow or another, uh, I kind of got on his good side. I don't know why, but I didn't really receive much of that. Uh, mostly I was observing it and, and watching people coming back and cowering. It's amazing. I, I wasn't at a high enough level to, to be messing up, you know, sufficiently. But there were, there were certainly some times where it's like, what is this? And, you know, wow. in front of me. So it's, it's really fun, you know, uh, looking at your life to this point and seeing the outcome with Dr. Clue and seeing how all these little moments in time really positioned you for what's to come. So well, it, was, it, was, it was truly miraculous. And after that, I got a job in a nonprofit, uh, you know, doing job development. I could go into detail on that, but it was uh, you know, it was a much more civil environment. I was paying a, be, being paid a, a whopping eleven seventy five per hour, and I was getting pretty discouraged and depressed because I was comfortable. I had a great boss. The work was relatively stimulating. If I just lived really spare like a traveler, I could make it. But I started to look ahead and say, "Okay." I'm 32 years old. What is it going to be like when I'm 40, 50, 60? Am I just going to be getting by doing office jobs? There, is this my fate? And what was, what was I was struggling with, Josh, was that I couldn't find anything in the world that really excited me. I looked at business, like you know, working in corporate America, and it's like, uh, my 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 liberal arts father would roll over in his grave, you know. Uh, if I ever, you know, if I, you know, business was a bad thing in our household, you know, you know, we were, we were intellectuals and professors and we weren't business people. And so I couldn't find anything that I wanted to do. I couldn't find a career. I, 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 I was frightened. To, I didn't want to go back into academia. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to go to law school. I had, in, I had so many stories I was telling me myself about how difficult these careers would be and how I wouldn't like them. 
And so I was sort of paralyzed. So much so that I had a friend who said, hey, why don't you come join my startup? Because you're a smart guy, but you seem like you're stuck in a rut. And I was so angry at him. I wanted to kill the messenger. How dare you say I'm stuck in a rut? But of course, I was stuck in a rut. Which is why you were so angry, right? The, the, you know, the anger tells us something. I was angry at myself. For sure. Of course, of course. I read recently where they say uh, something as profound as you are never, ever angry at what you think you're angry at. That's a good one. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's always a personal, personal anger. So you're making 1175 in the mid 90s in your early 30s looking ahead. At least you were paying the bills. I was paying the bills. I had roommates. I was paying the bills. In fact, remarkably, I was still paying the bills enough that I was able to, to go on an international trip every year. So I would go somewhere. I, basically, I was just living spare and saving for travel. That was my life. Mm, until, uh, so now we're connected up to the time frame where you, you were looking for something. And, and is it around this time where your friend reminded you what you loved about the Chinese New Year scavenger hunt? Yeah, that's what happened was I actually started doing a career search. I started actually getting some of these books like uh, What Color Is Your Parachute and Wishcraft and actually was uh, even one of the things they recommend is you find an accountability and brainstorm buddy. To actually, and so we started going through this book together, uh, you know, looking for what I could possibly do when I grow up. And that's when in the conversation, my friend said, who was an entrepreneur, said, have you ever thought about starting something yourself? I was like, no, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't know anything about finances or accounting or marketing. Oh, my God. He said, well, don't look at it that way. Look at it as just a fun project. And I thought, okay, well. And, then, and that's how, and he reminded me of how much I had loved the treasure hunt. And he said, why don't you do that? And I, I for whatever reason, I actually said, okay. <laughs> and, I, and, I tried, and I thought, I'll give it a try. I'm not quitting my day job. I'm not giving up my 1175, but let's give it, let, let's see what it would be like to try and create something like this. Cause sure. It's, it sounds fun. I, I had no idea that 23 years later that I would have uh, traveled all around the world doing this and I would love my job so much, but that's how things happen sometimes. I love a few times you've said the story we tell ourselves and the story in our head. And when your friend suggested, hey, why don't you do this sort of a thing? You love it so much. Your immediate response was to validate that story in your head that, oh, I can't do it. I don't know about it. But it's almost like that story was like for so many of us, um, from your, your childhood, how you viewed uh, the thoughts of your, your parents and your father, certainly, who the disconnect that, like you said, business wasn't a part of our world. Yeah, in a perfect world, I would have had the, the entrepreneur father and I wouldn't have had any resistance and I would have been selling lemonade on a stand. Uh, I had uh, the equivalent of growing up with a professor or a journalist. And so it was a, there was a lot of internalized uh, distance or uh, pushing away those ideas. Absolutely. And we, you, know, you, you get the family, you don't get the family you want or deserve. You get the family that you get. And there were many, and I, you know, I, I, I loved my family, but uh, certainly being an entrepreneur was not a path that uh, was ever paid for me. Although my mom always wanted a doctor. So Dr. <laughs> Dr. Clue, there you are. 
and and you you created that name. Yeah, actually, uh, we when I was sitting with my friend Scott, uh, initially he said, "Why don't you call it uh, Mr. Clue?" Uh, you know, and I said, "Nah, it's got to be Doctor Clue." <laughs> I don't know why. Just Doctor Clue sounded great. And then when I got married, I said, "Hey, do you want to be Nurse Clue?" And she said, "No," because she was a PhD. No, I want to be a doctor as well. But yeah, that that it, somehow or another, Doctor Clue had a nice ring to it. You mentioned a couple of times how um, how it's fun. Um, how important is that to to get into your life and certainly into your business? What a success! Fun, fun is everything uh, for me. If there's if if it stops being fun, I go I go do something else. And fortunately, uh, for for my work, you know, it's the fun is is there quite often, probably more often than most, because when I'm traveling around, uh, you know, one of my favorite things in the world is when I'm scouting a new treasure hunt and I'm dropped into a neighborhood or a park or museum, more often a neighborhood, and I've never been there before and I don't know what's there and I have to walk every block, uh, I have to poke my head into, into every restaurant, every tavern, every dark alley, looking for blue chip clue locations, what I call them, you know, treasure. And to me, those days when I am scouting are just the best because I, I really have no idea what is going to su- surprise and delight me. And then, of course, I, I, I take all of my notes and I go back and I start creating puzzles. And the trick, and there's a, a elegance to creating a treasure hunt clue. Meaning, if you were writing a clue that was going to let's say the Western Union office, you would probably write it in Morse code because you want to synchronize the final location with the clue type. If you were writing a clue that was going to a statue of Stevie Wonder, you would write it in Braille. If you were writing a a clue that was going to a military monument, you would write it using the military alphabet. If you were writing a clue to a sign talking about, I remember that one time there was a restaurant called Hydrogen. I said, great, I will write this clue using the periodic table of the elements. You want to make sure that when people hear the answers to the clues, they realize that there was a subliminal hint to the final location built into the type of clue itself. And that, was, that if they'd only noticed that, it would have been much easier. And that is the elegance of creating a synchronized clue. It's an actual art form. And the people like me who create treasure hunts, they insist on it. It's not an elegant clue unless you pull that off. So much respect, by the way. Um, I mean, you're, you're an intellectual. You're, it's certainly, like you said, it's an art form. You're an artist. You're creative. How big is your company? We, uh, it varies. It scales back and forth. It scaled down a little bit in 2008 when the economy went kablooey. We're about 10 people who facilitate for me. And, uh, and it scales back up and scales down. So when we do programs all about the country, we send the person who's closest to that location. And uh, I still get out and facilitate because I love doing that too. So you, you personally are the one to visit all the locations or, or did you say you do some and you have others do others? I have some, I have some, uh, I have several people who do it really well. And so they go out and they do it. Sometimes I go, I, I try and do it as much as, I, as my schedule permit because it's one of the things that jazzes me up. But I do have people who can do it. I have a, a full uh, tutorial that I can give people on how to scout a location. The problem is that I do most of the clue writing, even at this point. I've had clue writers in the past who created fantastic 
templates for me. So I do a lot of the clue writing myself. So there's times when, when you're walking around, the fact that I know all the possible clues, it will dictate what locations I write down. So like, okay, I, you know, I, know, I have a great clue. It's a dog breed clue. So if I come across something that is you know, a plaque about this fantastic dog that came here for 30 years, you know, I'll say, oh, dog clue. And so I'll write that down and I'll put a little star saying blue chip location because I, I know that this is going to use my dog clue template. So uh, it, 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 I, in some ways I am the perfect dude. Of course, at some point I'm going to have to clone myself because I can't do all of it. That's sort of what I was thinking. How much of this is you versus, I mean, you know, how much can be uh, given out to others? Well, my clue writers in the past, they had all the templates. They created a lot of templates. So it absolutely, if I find the right people, it absolutely can be delegated out. And it really just expands depending on, you know, for example, if I'm doing a lot of hunts in New Orleans, then I'll expand out and I'll hire a new facilitator in New Orleans. And maybe I'll hire a new clue writer there because New Orleans is hot that year. And then, but if it, if, if, if it backs off, then, you know, you scale back. It, it, there, there, it's not the kind of business where you want to have an ongoing group of 10 people in each city. Now, maybe one day, but at the moment it expands and contracts depending on which areas suddenly become popular. Again, 23 plus years that you've, you've been doing this and certainly continuing to do this. Looking back, and the more we're talking, it's just extraordinary and fascinating to see how, how really every moment, every transition of your life was really setting you up for all this. This was the work I was meant to do. And not many people can say that. And I never in my wildest dream thought I would be doing this or that, that this was a path I was heading for. But, it, you know, the advice I would give to your listeners is if you're not finding what's in the world right now and you're looking around, consider bringing something into the world that doesn't exist, that is built on you and your interests and your joys and your passions. And uh, the world needs more of that. And, 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 and it can be, you know, I didn't reinvent the wheel. I saw a treasure hunt and I just said, saw an opportunity to combine it with team building and to give it my particular flair. But the, somehow or another, this was absolutely what I was meant to do. And uh, along the ways, I've been tempted to do other things, but I'm still doing it 23 years later because there's nothing that gives me more joy than this job. Looking back on your life, knowing who you are today, how you've implemented all this, what you're doing, what do you say to Dave Blum 20, 30 years ago? You know, I might actually say something like, in spite of the messaging you're getting from your family uh take some take a business class or two <laughs> you know keep your options open i know you know on the other hand you can't second guess yourself the fact that i went down this path and had this intellectual education and then i did all this travel it ended up leading where it did but it wouldn't have been bad just to, to take a an economic class somewhere along the way take take a couple of business classes you know i did you know you know that i think that might have been a good thing but otherwise i I don't know that you can, I don't think that you can ever live in, in regret or, you know, I would do it differently because everything, you know, 
everything that's happening at that time is, is a mixture of good and bad, but I wouldn't want to give up all the good just so I could minimize the bad. I wouldn't want to say, okay, there was some anxiety at that time. It would have been great if you could have avoid, avoided that anxiety, but yeah, but there was so much good. So I, I would almost, I might be one of the few people who would say, just keep doing what you're doing, Dave. You're going to figure it out. Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on building the body of experience and interest. You're going to figure it out. And you're, uh, yeah. you're proof. That's it, yeah, that's how it worked out. Now, I, I, you know, it would, I would have, it would have been nice if I'd meditated a little bit earlier, though, I would say. Uh, I remember very uh, clearly it was like 19... 86 and I or 1984 and I was on a train in Japan and one of my best friends at the time another fellow named Scott said to me Dave you'd be a lot happier if you didn't have such a busy mind <laughs> and it was true my mind was so busy and I was worrying about you know how I looked and what people were thinking about me and it would have been nice if I had actually had that meditation buffer zone a little bit earlier in life but I guess I wasn't ready for it what mantra do you live by today I think it's have a balanced life and keep pushing yourself. Do you believe everything happens for a reason? Not necessarily. I, I, I feel that, that everything is an opportunity and that there are, and that you can't look at things as mistakes. Someone once told me that there are mistake makers and then there are life learners. So rather than being a mistake maker, why not always just be a life learner? So I think that you look at everything as an opportunity. It's one of the, it's part of my meditation practice every single morning as I repeat myself that every day I look at everything as an opportunity. So things happen, whether there's a meaning or not, there's an opportunity there. Hmm. Opportunity to learn. How are you spiritual or religious these days? I, more and more, I'm, I'm coming to believe in, in, in uh, re, some, some vague sense of reincarnation, actually, because I, I just look at how this process works, which, which, the, which we discussed of, you know, in every moment, a thought dies, a, your breath dies, you know, some cells in your body die, and then they're regenerated and something new appears. And then something dies and something new appears and something dies and something new appears. And it, it just, it, it doesn't seem, uh, it seems sensible to me that when this particular body of mind dies, that the consciousness will die, transform and be renewed in a new form, perhaps in a new body or, in, you know, as a cow or a cloud or whatever, who knows. But it, it does seem to me that this process of dying and resurrection and dying in resurrection, which is so popular in our, in our religions, it just seems to me that uh, my consciousness, it, 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 it doesn't see how it could uh, conflict with this universal practice of, of rising and falling and death and transformation and rebirth and new rising and new falling. So it, it, it seems like my consciousness will probably rise again in a new form. Wow, it's absolutely a stunning, stunning answer and visualization. What is what is next for you? Where do you go from here? A very good question, and I'm always working on that one. I'm not exactly sure. I, you know, I, I always uh, am trying to 
build my business. You know, it's, a, it's still a main focus. So continuing to grow it, continuing to see what new possibilities are out there for using uh, technology, that's, uh, that's great fun. I spend a, a lot of time on, uh, on public speaking these days and have barely been enjoying uh, Toastmasters, if you're familiar with that, and uh, working on that all the time. Uh, trying to point myself in the direction of uh, perhaps running a marathon one day. My uh, my wife is training for a marathon, and I'm uh, training for a half marathon. So you know, there's, there's you know, you just take it as it comes, and there's always fun, interesting projects to 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 take on. Absolutely beautiful. I will leave you with this question, Dave Blum. How would you like to be remembered? You know, every so often when I think maybe it's time for Doctor Clue to 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 be put to red or hand and put to bed or handed on. Someone just says to me, Hey, you can't do that. You're Dr. Clue. The world needs Dr. Clue. So I have to answer. I want to be remembered as the guy who delighted people for, for 30 or 40 years with Dr. Clue treasure hunt. Mm, absolutely magnificent to, to meet you, to be among your presence. Certainly a lot of fun. What a great guy. What a great thing you're doing. If somebody wants to reach out, say hello, keep a conversation with you going, how can they best get in touch? Uh, I obviously come to my website, which is drclue.com, D-R-C-L-U-E.com. That's the easiest way to find me. There's a Facebook page as well, but come to the website, hit the contact page, send me an email. Well, if you enjoyed this conversation, I know you're going to enjoy all of the links we will link to here. You are an endless array of fascination, sir. I thank you for opening up and your candor and spending your time with us. Really amazing to sit with you and meet you today. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for, for getting a clue today. Absolutely love it. Love everything about it. And I love everybody listening. Thank you for spending your time with us today. If you enjoyed this, let us know how much you did. A little rate and review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. And we're here. Let us know how you're enjoying everything in your life. We'll keep the conversation going. Until next time, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.